Well, hello and welcome back to the Memoirs of Abiding podcast. I'm Chris Bryant, and today I'm joined with Ricky Brooks. We wanted to start something a little different, counter to what many have been taught or learned through experience. Our topics will be practical and theological. We'll be focusing on what the early church saw. What we're going to talk about isn't some new idea, but rather an old idea gaining traction again. Our tell is sharing our experiences and looking at the Bible on this material. Our ask is that you will take it into your own devotion time and ask the Lord how to best apply it. We'll continue to talk about this material each week. We have blogs addressing practical applications at www.memoirsofabiding.com. We hope you experience God through talking about his word with us. Well, Ricky, welcome back. Exciting. I'm excited to be here again. Yeah. Um, so we've talked through in depth and a lot of different topics within abiding so far. This is quite a bit in. I mean, this is episode number eight of our podcast. We've been going strong, talking about identity, the importance of God's word, and uh, talking about sin. And now I wanted to talk about when we are looking at the world and how a lot of Christians and non-Christians deal with these traumas and events that come up in life, a lot of the first thoughts sometimes fall into getting a counselor or a life coach or a mentor, and then they walk them through some of the different processes that you're much more familiar with than I am. But some of these psychology activities, processes, exercises to try to center people or try to bring them back and anchor them in, in a truth in their life to deal with a lot of these problems. So I wanted to talk about that because I think it's pretty big in society today. And I think it's even bigger than one would expect within the church. And so when we talk about abiding as a lifestyle, I think it's important to also talk about the equivalent for a, an unbeliever for their lifestyle. So Introducing psychology, what are the uses of psychology to a non-believer and to a believer? Well, in the life of an adult, and I think, you know, for our purposes, I think kind of focusing on adults, it should not come as any surprise that there's no perfect person in the world. We all have issues. Some of those issues are so deeply ingrained and so contradictive to healthy living, that assistance is necessary. And that assistance could come psychologically, emotionally, as simply as talking to a really good friend. Before you go into that, some of these issues that you're talking about, can you go just give us some examples of ones that would not allow for healthy living, just so people understand what you're talking about? Well, so they're like old-fashioned terms that aren't used very often, like arrested development. Somebody didn't fully mature for whatever reason, uh, some kind of dysfunction in the household, or maybe there was uh, too great a uh, level of permissiveness, or too great a level of neglect, or too great a level of authoritarianism. So things may have been out of balance or maybe something was missing in the household. So a young person growing up as a child, as an adolescent, doesn't learn the life skills necessary for what we would all consider normal, natural, healthy adult living. So it could be everything from uh, just an anger issue. 
to pervasive depression. Uh, maybe a young person grows up neglected and therefore doesn't feel loved. Transfers the feelings of not feeling loved at home to their life in the rest of the world. And that's problematic. Or if it's rage or uh, indolence, laziness, or whatever problematic character trait or attitude or behavior a person has that, say, a boss wouldn't tolerate. Maybe it was tolerated at home. Maybe it was, maybe the child was abused and it was, they attempted to beat it out of them. And so the, the child acted obedient on the outside, but just waited for the opportunity to be gone from home because on the inside they were being, their mind was disobedient because they should have been disobedient to that kind of abuse. But then that becomes their natural, that becomes part of their personality. It becomes habituated in their life. It, it became a defense mechanism. And now as an adult, these behaviors and these thought patterns are destructive to their relationships, whether it's at work or in an interpersonal relationship, friendship, romance, whatever it might happen to be. So they stumble through life. And this is where a good counselor come, come alongside and help them to sort that stuff out. To get to the root of it. Sort yeah, of. to look to look backward in time and go, can we figure out why you're behaving this way? And and and, and you know, one of the basic whys is are you behaving this way because you simply choose to, nothing in your life forced you down this path? Or probably more likely, something, some kind of deficiency, you know, pushed them down this path and therefore they did not develop normal cultural social skills. And, and a counselor can help a person look backward in time. They can process memories and go, why do you suppose this particular problem for you uh, is so pervasive? Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your relationships with people in the past? And this has taken all kinds of forms. You know, there's literally hundreds of different types of psychology constructs. Uh, in fact, there's so many of them that that's a problem with the field of psychology. Which one of these do you pick? Uh, thankfully, in our era right now, there are some that are based on pretty strong evidence, you know, and while I think they're de deficient in helping people, it's better than nothing. You know, <laughs> if you can get grandpa to come over and patch your, your leaky faucet, that's better than it just, you know, leaking, leaking, leaking. Better if, better if you get a really, really highly competent plumber to come in and fix that plumbing really well, or even better, replace it all so that you have brand new plumbing system, right? But if, if all you can get is some patches on it, that's better than, than the water, you know, continuing to run down into the behind the drywall and everything. So it has a benefit. Most it's, certainly. It most certainly does. Absolutely. I mean, uh, people need to have as regular a life as they possibly can have. And so anything we can do to help people regulate their lives, regulate their thought processes, regulate their, their behavior is a good thing. So I, I, as a pastor, I would never tell anybody not to get counseling. Uh, I, I believe that 
anyone who can help me or someone else think through a problem more functionally is, is, is successfully helping someone. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that it can really help with those identifying of those defense mechanisms, those triggers, those dispositions that we talk about in a person's life. I know personally, I went through uh, some counseling and what that really did for me is it taught me emotions because I I just never really learned emotions. I I couldn't connect a, a word to a feeling that I was feeling. And so when I went and went through about a year of counseling with a psychologist that was one of the the main focuses that she helped me walk through and then connect it to some triggers and things like that so definitely a a helpful activity that I went through to be able to learn emotions to be able to put a word with what I was feeling so that I could express it to you or to someone else in my life yeah I think you know the very use of the word trigger that you use there that's a helpful concept. You know, a lot of people equate a psychological trigger to a biblical temptation. And while they have some similarities, they are definitely not the same thing. So a person grow like, but a counselor can say, well, while you were growing up, this took place and this took place. And you learned social cues. You know, dad would come home and he was really angry all the time. And you and your, your little brother got slapped around, you know, whatever it might, if, if, it's, if it was an abusive situation. So for you, just the sound of a closing door has become a trigger. Well, now you're, you're 27. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about a sure. counselor talking to somebody. Yeah. Now, you're, now you're 27. You've been married for three years. And while you were dating, everything was wonderful and Everybody put their best foot forward. But, you know, as you, as you shared with me a few months into the marriage, you began to notice something when your husband would come home. And sometimes he'd come, he'd come home at one time and, and another time because he has some issues. And, and then you began yelling at him about three months into your marriage, literally as he would open the door. Can you see some similarities to what that looks like with your mother and father and you as a child when your dad would come home enraged all the time and that triggered the door itself is a trigger Well, that trigger now can be now the counselor could help him. that trigger can now become a, a warning for you. As soon as you hear the door, the keys in the door, you can begin to think proactively. You can be mindful of the situation. You can begin to engage a thought process that says, just because he's coming home doesn't mean he's going to be filled with silence or despondency or whatever trouble your husband comes home with more often than you would like. You can begin to think that through the moment you hear him drive up. And you can process that and think about it. And then, and then with a little self-talk, learn, well, now how could I respond to him differently than automatically assuming he's going to yell at me or shut down? So by looking and connecting the past to the present, the counselor gives this person new skills. And if the person utilizes these new skills, 
they begin to regulate that life. And now there's less tension. And the husband begins to recognize in that, in that scenario, hey, it's, things are different. And then he goes, hey, I want to thank you that this whole last week or so, every, every night I've come home, it's just been really pleasant. What, what's going on? And that opens up a discussion for the two of them. So that kind of skill building is, is essential. You know, um, yeah, person needs as much help as they can get. They should get it. That's how I feel. Yeah, and that applies to unbelievers and believers alike. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we've barely touched the tip of the iceberg on this particular topic, and we've I'm trying to use just layman language, but I think it's not rocket science, you know, to understand the process. And we'll go into more on this, and we may even jump into this same topic in a different focus in later podcasts. But the important thing is. The difference for a Christian and a non-Christian, I think, and we'll get into this on the third part, but not putting your sole hope in the counselor. I think that's one thing that I've heard from brothers and sisters in Christ in the past is they try to put all of their hope into the efforts of that one person. Let's shift gears into the next question is what becomes the greatest barrier between a fully healed individual and these methods of psychology that we've been introducing? So I think, as we've already said, counseling can certainly help a person rearrange their life, rearrange their thinking, give them skills of, you know, and counseling is as easy as grandma, you know, saying, now, now, Sonny, count to 10 before you get mad at your sister, (laughs) right? Well, that's a pretty good skill. Just slow down. All right. One, two, three. Hey, Grandma, that worked. That's why I say counseling can be as simple as friendship. In fact, there are studies that indicate comparing different forms of psychological formats. These are uh, older studies, but in comparing behavioral psychology and uh, a couple of others with just a, a group of people who have great relationships in which they can talk their problems out. That having friendships and family where they can talk about their problems was as successful as you know weekly counseling sessions with people in three or four different types of psychology formats. That's intriguing. Yeah. So counseling is just people helping other people regulate their life and their thinking. So that's really super good. However, it's not the ultimate solution because you can replace a poor coping skill with a better coping skill. And a person's life will be better regulated. But what happens when something new comes along, some new trauma, some new problem, then do they have to continue to learn a new skill all the time? Or is there an ultimate issue of meaning and purpose that can reside deep within a person that fortifies them against all the curveballs in life, all the pitfalls in life? And, you know, what other ever analogies I can come up with, right? All the, all the junk that keeps coming at us. 
Is there, is there a, a measure of a man or a woman that can become strong enough in the presence of, the, of a more ultimate form of healing that will enable them to move forward regardless of all the junk that keeps getting tossed at them? So an example of a coping mechanism shifting up to a better, would you say if my coping mechanism is alcohol, let's say I, if I get frustrated, if I get angry, if I get sad, I, I, I will dive into alcohol because it numbs out and I just don't feel it. I go to a counselor for a while talking about alcoholism and we have to find a better focal point. So it may be exercise or dancing, right? So would that be a positive coping mechanism change, but still a coping mechanism? It is. Uh, and it's positive because, you know, it's, it's, it's not dysfunctional. So a dysfunctional coping mechanism is one that causes problems for the person and the people in relationship with them. If it disrupts life, if it deregulates life, it's dysfunctional. It could be a coping mechanism. It can make a person feel emotionally static, but they know it's not helping their life. So they replace it like they become, you know, uh, a workout, a workaholic on workouts, right? But what happens then if something happening happens and that particular skill is no longer available. So they break a leg. Literally. Yeah, some, yeah, something along those lines. And, you know, that's a pretty superficial analogy, but it, it, it demonstrates that it's not a complete fix. It's still a replacement. It's socially redemptive, but it's not complete. So uh, language, the language that I would apply to that was, I would say, it was a necessary new coping skill, but not a sufficient one. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Okay. Got to make those changes, but if it's not complete, if it's not sufficient, and I, and I think that's one of the fallbacks of, of modern evidence-based psychology and counseling is they're not sufficient. And the reason they're not sufficient is because they don't address ultimate meaning and purpose in a person's life. Yeah. yeah that's the spiritual realm that psychology doesn't really acknowledge or, or understand. Yeah. I mean, a person can, can be very, very happy, very productive, very functional and believe that they, you know, they kind of have, you know, they have the reins in their life really well, because they might have a great relationship with somebody that props up their well-being on a daily, hourly basis. But then maybe that person gets sick and dies. And boom, there's just this hole that's overwhelmingly, well, in a quasi-spiritual statement, that person filled a spiritual position in one's life that had to do with the meaning and the purpose that was lost in the past. And so we then, at that point, we're, we're, we're making a transition between the story of psychology and sociology into the realm of bibliology and theology.
what that ultimate purpose is, is talked about. Because remember in our past discussions about the issues of the fall and the old man in Genesis and stuff like that, what was it that humanity lost? Humanity lost its original design statement, its original design purpose, its original destiny, where meaning should have been found, they threw it away. Everything else became a replacement. And so even though good psychology and counseling gives somebody a highly socially redemptive skill, it's still a replacement for the ultimate meaning and purpose in in one's life. So believer or unbeliever alike, if they've got nothing else, I would say, get those counseling skills, have somebody help you with those. It'll, it'll regulate your life. But I wouldn't want them to be, to buy into it to the point, and if it's okay to make the transition to the spiritual, where Jesus said, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world, but lose his soul? And that that's where Jesus comes in, you know, and says, you know, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me for my yoke is easy, right? He's the ultimate. He will never let us down. And so then purpose and meaning become established permanently. Yeah, I like to look at it with that same idea of the whole and the soul. I have like a visual of some of these roads here in Tennessee that are just awful. Sure, they're up there too. But where the Department of Transportation or whoever it is supposed to fix them, sometimes if they they can't fix it at that moment, they'll put those big metal plates or they'll try to do a detour around that specific spot. And I feel like as I begin to understand psychology and the the skill sets that have come with it, they've almost been that. Like you've got a trauma so deep that you try to find these things to fix them to but you can't and so you use someone else to help detour or help put a a barrier in the road from you falling into that hole and sometimes that helps sometimes it's another coping mechanism like you said but I think psychology starts to fall apart when you when we do talk about that spiritual realm that you can't fill that with just like Adam and Eve found, you, you can't fill that with any of these things that we have in our lives, even the most amazing partner in life that you could possibly have can't fill that, that hole in our heart. And so since that psychology can't really measure the spiritual realm, it's going to have difficulty fathoming the need for this divine source of love that we lost in the garden or at the end of the garden, right? That meaning and that purpose. And if it can't accept that, then any root that may be discovered will never fully solve the issue. So the idea of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, once a porn addict, always a porn addict, once an abuser, always an abuser, it's going to stick because they can't, they can't fill that hole in their soul. But the good news for us is that Christ can Right, that that overcoming ability. So going into the next one, how can this be overcome with Christ? When we're looking at God's word as our reference, we've got to start with the most basic level. 
And starting at the most basic level is who am I? The identity. Once I can establish an identity for who I am, then I can move forth and understanding where I came from, because that's part of it, right? But more so how God can, can change me. One of the focus points of the discipleships that we go through, I think phase one really hits on identity. Because once you can understand who you are in Christ, then the rest of the word of God, I can trust explicitly because I know who I am. So when God tells me something, I trust it because I know that I'm his and that he's never let me down. So kind of going into that and and using the Holy Spirit as our counselor at that point, when we look at psychology and handling many of these problems that we noted, that the spiritual identity disorder and I know you've coined that in my life. Someone else may have coined it in yours, but that was a the, the big one that hit me in my life, that not knowing truly who you are is the greatest barrier for psychology bringing the healing into our lives. So with this being the case, then the easiest solution is to solve the question, who am I? So if we think about it, if I know who I am and whose I am, then the whole in my soul is filled. So if the whole came from a parent, rejecting me and walking out of my life and therefore anyone who walks away when i'm i'm in it if i'm married and my wife walks away at an anger you know in a moment of anger when we're having one of these tiffies or something like that instantly the trigger may send me back to well my mom or my dad left me and this is just another person proving that but i'm in that moment my identity is in what happened to me back as a child yeah. That is, is a strong identity. I am the child that was left and now my spouse or now my best friend or now someone else in my life is going to leave me reinforcing that identity that my flesh has kind of tried to, to build. But shifting it when I can truly understand my identity, not know up here in my head, but know truly to my core who I am. Then when someone screams and yells at me, I know that I'm not that kid that was left and rejected, even though that happened to me and I can look back and I can see that has caused me to be where I am. And the Lord has used that trial to build faith in him. But when that identity truly comes out, then I can look at someone who a spouse or a friend who just walks away. They just, they never talk to me again. They ghost me in the, the modern language. Then it's like, Oh Lord, I, I I'm sad that, that happened. But it doesn't shake me. It doesn't change who I am. So I don't struggle in that moment. It doesn't throw me back to those triggers because in that healing that I receive from the Lord and, and identifying who I am, no longer do those triggers have that effect on me because that's not who I am. It was who I was, but it's not who I am now, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it, it does to me. Uh, what you just shared over the last few minutes deserves several podcasts because it's at the heart of what we're talking about. Uh, this earlier this morning, real early this morning, um, I got to spend a little time with my granddaughter and grandson uh, drawing pictures. And one of them drew pictures of SpongeBob. And I said, well, how about drawing a picture of a cat dog? And my my granddaughter said, who? I said, cat dog. And her mama, Abby, knew who I was talking about because that was like a, a millennial cartoon from Nickelodeon, you know, like, like when my daughter Jessica was in 
elementary and junior. I don't know if you remember. Never Cat heard Dog. of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Cat Dog is uh, somebody, Nick, some Nickelodeon cartoon from like 90s or late 90s or something in there. It, it's half cat and half dog. There's no tail. It, it's, you know, it's kind of going back and forth, you know. And at some points, the dog is running and dragging the cat behind it. And at other points, the cat's running and dragging the dog. Well, this poor animal is the most frustrated thing you've ever come come across, right? (laughs) Uh, So went on YouTube and showed uh, Rachel and and James a cartoon. It was like a little four-minute cartoon. And they they were dismayed, to say the least, because... The dog was trying to figure out how to eat, right? And can't eat meat, you know, because cats are made out of meat. <laughs> you know, so uh, and and uh, and then uh, it, you know, it was just it was ridiculous. But the problem was, and the, whoever came up with the idea of cat dog understands human dynamics. If you struggle with identity, if you are an, if you are an out of identity existence you're in big trouble i mean and that's what our world is living on today uh is spiritual identity disorder i mean it's like the ultimate last statement of rebellion god you can't tell me who i am i will choose who i am and that's that's the ultimate in idolatry is to say to god no i know better about my identity than you and I can find my identity where I choose. Well, God is a gentleman and gives us that opportunity, but boy, it leads to destructive issues. If, if you know, if I if I want to identify with my particular ism, or I want to identify with my particular substance abuse, or I want to identify even with the condition of human identity, it's a it's a it's a, a fist being shaken at God Almighty saying. I I get to choose, and that's takes us right back to Genesis, right? So when we don't really know who we are, then we will never fill the hole in our soul because only the identity God chose for us, and and ultimately that is summarized in a simple statement: I am a child of God. You know, God wants me to be in a close abiding relationship with him and when i finally understand that that's the first stepping stone to going oh i can now know who i am through the lenses of god and i can begin to fulfill the destiny and the purpose of who god designed me to be in the restored born again believer's life that's good Again, that we need to come back to it because that's so insufficient of an explanation. You know, you and I have only just barely tipped, opened, opened up the bucket on, on what that looks like. But to know that I'm a child of God becomes my, my ultimate healing agent. God himself is the, is the healer but it's him in our life transforming us from the inside out saying, see, this is what we intended. This is what we have for one another. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit abiding in one another in perfect agenda harmony, and us being invited into that family to participate in that perfect identity and, and agenda harmony. Is, you know, when it says in Romans chapter eight, you know, that the Holy Spirit testifies to my born again spirit that I'm a child of God. And every time I'm reminded of that, which is all day long, all the time, anything can remind me of that because it's God doing the reminding. I just keep having these ah, ah, aha moments, you know, and there's nothing really to, to help us relate to that because we have to use fallen analogies, right? We, we use great storytelling about a father son relationship that just is like, you know, the preacher preaches this beautiful story and people go out crying or filled with laughter or something because of this precious, awesome story. And hallelujah, if somebody has that kind of father son relationship, but no matter how good you can make that story, it falls way short of how good it is with our heavenly father. Like I have great relationship with my grown children, but they'll be the first ones to tell you. Dad told us over and over and over again, growing up, thank you for trusting me, but ultimately trust in your heavenly father, because I'm incomplete. I will let my kids down. I will let my grandkids down. We'll do the very best we can. And those relationships are precious and necessary, but they too are not sufficient. Uh, but God is completely sufficient. So like I said, we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg, but it's all about that identity. You're so right on. Uh, yeah. You're... So when we, we've talked a little bit about these discipleships that we go through and we bring others through. And I know for me personally, if we go through roughly a year of this discipleship, the first six months is spent in identity. And a couple of the verses that we, we hit on in that I wanted to go over today. Sure. So in Romans 6, 4 through 7, Paul says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we no longer are slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. And another, two more of them that we go over. Second one is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And last is from Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3. Seeing that his divine power is granted to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. That last one is, is big because it's not only our identity, but it's what he's equipped us with. It's what he's given us in this new identity. So the first two talk about who we are as a person. The last one talks about what he's truly enabled us to be able to do. And so that hints to this idea of where this power comes from. So what role... Does the Holy Spirit play in all of this that we're talking about? Well, when we talk about abiding, right, we're talking about a personal 
up close, measurable relationship with God. And God tells us that in his intrinsic nature, there is the mystery of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so to be filled with the Spirit is to be under the control of the Spirit. Other passages of Scripture would talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life or the sovereignty of the Father. But apart from the abiding motif that Jesus talks about, in which he talks about the Holy Spirit coming and ministering to us, is the other motif in the New Testament about walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And all of those are done through the Spirit of God, bringing the Word of God to our mind and our heart, as we have poured as He and I and we together pour God's word into our heart and mind that we become more and more washed by the word of God. That we become overwritten by the word of God. And it seems to be the unique role of the Holy Spirit then to take that truth and bring it to our memory over and over. Now, a number of dynamics happen here. He corrects us if we're thinking wrongly by via the word of God encourages us if we're discouraged via the word of God imparts to us new truth as we pour the word of God into our mind which consistently then makes our mind and our thinking and our identity look and feel more and more like Jesus Christ and and then in the doing of all of that, our spirit just elates in that. We, we, we keep having aha moments, you know, kind of like I, I remember a few times talking to you in the early days of you learning to abide in the Savior and walking in the Spirit. And you would have, you, you said things like in a text or something like, sometimes I just kind of want to giggle because it's like, you know, I want to look to the left, you know, because there's Jesus or look to my right because there's the Holy Spirit, because you would pour the word of God into your heart. And in, in like in like in perfect synchronization with your life circumstances, here comes the Holy Spirit reminding you of a passage of scripture. And you sh shared some of those in the podcast, like yeah. like at your boss and at, at work. Yeah, Nehemiah. And yeah. Yeah. You know, where where you're dealing with a particular issue and you had just poured this these passages of scripture into your mind. And in that very setting, the Holy Spirit goes, oh, here, there was a reason for you pouring over Nehemiah. Wasn't there, Christopher? And, you're, and I, I, you know, you literally had to say, you have to say, sorry, boss, I'm not laughing at you. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm reveling here in, in my in my spiritual identity in the Lord, because he just shared with me a passage of scripture that pertains to what we're talking about here with these difficulties we're having to work out here at the, at the offices or whatever it is you're working at, you know, so, so it's not only the simple fact that he does it, it's a reminder of his close and personal connection with us, walking in the presence of God. Well, when, when you read the passage from Romans, right, uh, that passage is describing what we're talking about 
all of a sudden we be start to be transformed from the inside out. Therefore, we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We begin to see that new life, supernatural, heaven-sent, miraculous life that God gives the, the believer in Jesus. For if we've become united with him, that's abiding in him, in the likeness of his death, if we've died to that old man, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, the new man. So the old man is gone, and now the spiritual identity that God always wanted us to have is alive and well. Knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So the power of the sin is, is no longer gripping our lives. It's been broken. That power's been broken so that we no longer are slaves to sin or missing the mark with God, not finding our meaning in God, not seeing our life in God, not understanding our true identity in God, not fully comprehending who we were originally created to be, for we have died and we're now freed from missing that mark. And now we can see clearly, God is my all in all. So now we have a necessary answer and a fully sufficient answer for the meaninglessness and the brokenness in our lives. We have, it's no longer a crutch. It's no longer a band-aid. It's no longer a new coping skill. It's a new life. That's the supernatural work of God that psychology and sociology cannot provide for us. Yeah. The reminders with those traumas and hurts and pains, they're constant reminders of sin done, done against us or that yeah. we've done against other people. But the problem is we can't fix it. And like you're saying that the, the fix comes through God's work in our life. If we were capable, we would have done it. Yeah. I can't imagine there's many people out there that think, man, when I grow up, I want to be a drug addict. I want right. to, I want to beat my wife. I want to beat my kids. I want to, I want to nag. I want to attack. I want to spend all my money and go into oblivion. I don't think anyone is born with those thoughts in their mind. And so then when that happens in their life, when they lose control, whatever that looks like, it's not like they're like, oh, I'm, I, I like doing this. I, I found my new calling. The problem is, though, if they could fix it, they would have. They, yeah. they just can't. And so the only one who can fix that is God himself. It's like a, a vase. Can a vase or a pot fix itself when it's broken? Or can the sheep, the example that Jesus gave with the, the lost coin, the, the sheep and all that, can the sheep find itself back to the, the sheepfold? Can it find it? No, they, they hide and they, they sit still and, and wait for the shepherd to come rescue them, right? So a, a child, same way, who gets lost in a crowded theme park. I know we're coming to the, the end of it, but I know one of my, my sons, we were in a, a restaurant in Disney World, and we all took a left, and he was right behind me. We took a left to go sit at a table. He kept walking and didn't even pay attention, and he was mm -hmm. lost. And I, I had all my kids stand on the side. I was looking for him all over the place, thinking the worst. 
and he had no idea how to find us. And so he just walked off another direction thinking he was going to find us. And he would have never found us had I not searched around and done some crazy search patterns for him. So all of these are just examples of the fact that we can't do it. There's no action or external agent that can cause this change to assist us except God. And we know from above a broken agent cannot fix a broken agent or as, as it's been coined in that I've heard in my life, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And so the only one then who can resolve all this pain is the Holy spirit in our life. He's causes this transformation. Like you're talking about, whether it's illuminating those verses that I had read, what a year before that I hadn't even read Nehemiah and he brought it to mind or he causes the healing. He is Jehovah Rapha, the yeah. Lord, our healer. And um, he's the one that sanctifies. So yeah, looking through all of this really interesting topic, and I think you got a point. Maybe we'll, we'll in the future in November or December, maybe we'll spend a whole month on going and digging deeper into identity because I, I want to just talk about where we're going in the next month. In October, next week, we're going to talk about praying and abiding in the storm. But then in October, I want to bring on some more people outside of us who have been abiding in their lives and have gone through these traumas. And instead of coming out on the other end with more defense mechanisms and coping skills, they were able to find this identity that we're talking about in the Lord. And they were able to get through it without being shaken down to their core, without bringing up those stress disorders, without bringing up this constant fear and anxiety. So I'm really excited that we get into that in October, but I think this was a good start. Yeah, I think so too. I, I, one, can I finish, offer one other thing too? Yeah. I, I, I don't want to leave anybody thinking that this is like a boom shakalaka. We found instantaneous magic. God, be, God is a father. Jesus is a savior. He's a redemptive older brother. The spirit of God is a comforter and a teacher. So in, in one sense, we are spiritually being reparented. All this stuff that we lost out in, in life, regardless of how we measure that, somebody with deep criminal psychology or somebody that's been broken by having been traumatized by someone else, because sin comes in all of those forms. And as you said just a few moments ago, sometimes it's sin that people do against us. Sometimes it's the choices we make. Well, sin is traumatizing. It's the exact opposite of what God wants in our life. And that's traumatizing. And we get stunted. We get broken. Well, then all of a sudden we are saved. The five great miracles of salvation, we, we are redeemed. We're forgiven. The doctrine of redemption. We are justified, declared innocent. The, the doctrine of justification. We are adopted into the family and the household of God, the abiding relationship, the doctrine of adoption. We are reconciled, the doctrine of reconciliation, in which our mind is changed. We're no longer aliens in our thinking toward God. We invite him to be a part of our life. And then finally, 
the doctrine of regeneration. We're born again. Five great miracles that happened to us. And they are a complete picture of a new child in a perfect family where the parenting now is all about the unique, wonderful design God created me to be and you to be as his unique child. And he takes his eternal truth and just lovingly, you know, woos us and, and nurtures us and sometimes disciplines us and sometimes rewards us and sometimes holds things, things back. But none of it is ever out of balance like it is here on planet Earth when we are either the children or the parents in the human sense, because other than Jesus, we're all deficit. So it's a lifetime of him wooing us and putting his arm around us and nurturing us and sometimes dragging us to come on, man, you know, uh, but done in all the best perfect way that it could possibly be done can be done. So when we talk about identifying with Christ and with the father and the Holy spirit, but there's so much more than just, I am a new child of God. I go to church. I'm hallelujah. You know, I, I love my worship experience. Hallelujah. We're not talking about that. That's all part of it, but that's not what we're talking about. And I hope, uh, I hope your listeners have been able to, to discern that we're talking about something much more fundamental than just the identity, the identity that we have in Christ because we go to church. It's not that. That's part of it, but it's not that. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And so as we end every podcast, we want to end with an important scripture that reminds us to abide in him. So in John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So as you walk through this week, we encourage you to review the scriptures and themes we talk about and ask the Holy Spirit to team up with you to bring this information to life personally in your own walk. Thank you for listening and God bless.